Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 161, Honorius II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So two episodes ago, we mentioned a conflict between the papacy and one of the powerful Roman families called the Frangipani. And to understand the election and papacy of today's Pope Honorius II, we need to start with a brief background on the family who's going to become increasingly important in our story. The Frangipani we've already met, they have in general been supporters of the reform popes against the Crescenzi and the Tusculani and the other imperial factions. And they had been helping popes who had been exiles from Rome get back in an occasion. We met one member of the family two episodes ago when he stormed into the conclave that elected Pope Gelasius II, picked him up by his neck, and locked him in his tower. So the Frangipani were more and more flexing their muscles. Their power base was built around the Colosseum. Yes, that Colosseum, which they had turned into a fortress and from which they controlled a wide swath of the territory in Rome itself. Now, this was a common practice in medieval Rome. A powerful family would take over an ancient monument, fortify it, and make it their power base in the city. We saw this earliest with the Crescenzi family, a couple centuries ago, controlling the castle San Angelo. They had taken what was the mausoleum of uh, Hadrian, built a fortress on top of it, and that was their power base in the city. Now, the big rivals to the Frangipani at this time, the Pier Leone, controlled the theater of Marcellus, and they used that to maintain their hold on the island in the Tiber and the neighborhood of Trastevere. Now, it's worth noting that what happened here is a similar pattern to what often happens in conflicts between Roman families or factions in general. The Frangipani and the Pier Leone were at one point both on the same side. They both supported Urban II against the Crescenzi and the anti-pope de jour. But now that the Crescenzi are out, the Frangipani and the Piero Leone found themselves on opposite sides. Now, in terms of our current episode, this conflict manifested itself in the election that followed the death of Callistus II in 1124. At the death of Callistus, the College of Cardinals was divided between those more traditional Roman and Italian members who had been appointed by earlier popes intended to lean toward the Piero Leone family and the Benedictine order, and then the more recent French and other northern Italian cardinals who had been appointed by Callistus, who had allies with the Frangipani and some of the newer religious orders like the Norbertines and the Cistercians. In this election, the Frangipani's candidate was a Cardinal Lamberto Scanabecchi, the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia. The main driver of his candidacy was the French Cardinal Amri de la Chartes, who was serving as the papal chancellor and the main advisor to Callistus II. When the conclave met in December of 1124, they initially and unanimously elected the Pier Leone candidate, a Cardinal Teobaldo Bocopecora. It helped, of course, that the election was held closer to Pier Leone territory, but it seems like everybody pretty much supported Teobaldo. He said yes, he took the name Celestine II, the cardinals put the papal clothes on him and everything, and then right when they were all singing the Te Deum in thanksgiving to God for a new pope, Robert Frangipani broke into the conclave with a group of armed men. They knocked down Teobaldo and said instead that Lamberto should be pope, and Teobaldo apparently out of fright said that he renounced the election, and, and then the Frangipani said that Lamberto was now elected. Now, it helped that they then greased the palms of several key opponents over the following days, until finally no one opposed him. 
Lamberto himself was apparently appalled. He refused to be elected in this way. He renounced himself his own election and asked for a free one. So the cardinals met again and unanimously elected Lambert freely. Though I'll put freely in air quotes because, I mean, come on, there were bribes going on, there was military pressure, all this kind of stuff. Regardless, Lamberto took the name Honorius II. So with all that drama behind us, let's go back and find out who Lamberto Scanabrecchi is. He was born outside of Bologna to a lower middle class family, but despite humble origins, he was found to be quite intelligent and learned. He most likely entered the clerical life in Bologna, where it was reported that he was the archdeacon. Pope Paschal II appointed Lamberto Cardinal Bishop of Ostia in 1117. Lamberto then traveled with Pope Gelasius after his election in 1118 and was with him when he died in the monastery of Cluny. It was there that Lamberto helped orchestrate the election of Pope Callistus II, which, if you remember, happened in France with just a few of the cardinals who were present, rather than in Rome with the full College of Cardinals. Lamberto was entrusted with the very sensitive negotiations with the Emperor Henry V, which we talked about last time, and which led up to the First Lateran Council. And he was a driving force in getting Henry to capitulate and end the fight between the emperor and the popes over investiture. And after the Lateran Council and the death of Callistus II, he was naturally going to be one of the prime candidates for the papacy. Which brings us back to his very controversial, quote-unquote, election. And now Lamberto is Pope Honorius II. Because of the way his election was forced, Cardinal Ameriac and the Frangipani played an outsized role in the papacy of the man they got elected. Cardinal Amariac was the most trusted advisor of the Pope, and he directed papal appointments and activity to side more with the Frangipani and their allies. Now, this isn't going to go over well, as you can imagine, with the Pure Leonian with other Romans, but we'll save their response for a little later. The first big thing on the docket for the new Pope was the power vacuum opened due to the death of Henry V. Now, this was a big moment for the Church, since up to this point, as we know, there has been a big struggle between the Emperor and the Pope. Now, if Honorius could get one of his own on the throne of Germany, it would help solidify the gains made at the Lateran Council and cement papal control over the appointments of bishops and, in general, help ease relationships across Europe. Sure enough, with the help of two legates sent to Germany, the German nobles elected Lothair III, who was a very pro-papal German noble, and who was going to completely side with the Pope and confirm the deal worked out with his predecessor, Henry V. Now, despite his election in Germany, Lothair was not universally popular in the Holy Roman Empire. The Hohenstaufen family, who we will meet more fully later on, don't worry, they're not going anywhere, they rebelled against Lothair and induced the Archbishop of Milan to crown one of their partisans, Conrad III, as King of Italy. The Pope helped support Lothair in his dispute with Conrad and the Hohenstaufens and excommunicated the Archbishop of Milan for his action. Eventually, the Hohenstaufens failed to defeat Lothair, and they're going to have to buy their time for power later. Which means it's time to move on to France and some conflicts there. Stephen, the Bishop of Paris, had gotten in a fight with Louis VI, the king. Stephen was an ardent reformer and a supporter of some of the newer religious orders against the older Benedictines. He got in trouble with the king when he decided to replace one group of monks with a newer group, the Canons of St. Victor, in a particular royal monastery. The king responded by taking away the bishop's privileges and feudal regalia. That then provoked the bishop to put the king under interdict, which means that the sacraments are denied for everyone living in a particular area as punishment for the king's discretions. Now, we're really talking about this scandal because it allows us to introduce someone into the story who's going to play a huge role going forward, and that is a monk named Bernard, who we know today as St. Bernard of Clairvaux. 
St. Bernard was born in 1090 in Burgundy to a noble family. He was an excellent scholar, and in early age he had a great devotion to Our Lady and was fascinated with the study of Scripture. He joined the Cistercian monks, who were one of the reform movements of Benedictines in 1113, and he did so with a huge group of his family coming with him. He had decided that religious life was truly so good that he needed to convince everyone in his family and circle of friends to join. And so when he shows up at the monastery door, he shows up with at least 25 of his friends and family, cousins, uncles, friends, everyone came. He was soon appointed abbot of a daughter house of the Cistercians, the famous Abbey of Clairvaux. St. Bernard was a force to be reckoned with in France at this time. He gradually got more and more involved in the broader church as a whole, promoting the reform of the clergy and monasteries, and he convinced Stephen, the Bishop of Paris, to undertake his own reforming program, which would eventually lead him into conflict with the king. Bernard was a wholehearted supporter of Stephen, which annoyed some of the cardinals in Rome. Why couldn't he just mind his own business? Honorius wanted to remain neutral in France, so he fairly quickly lifted the interdict and decided that a council needed to be held in France to resolve these issues. He sent a trusted advisor, the Cardinal Matthew d'Albano, to a council in Troyes, which met in January of 1129. St. Bernard was there, as was the Bishop of France, Stephen, who started all this. And Bernard pleaded Stephen's cause, and a reconciliation was brought about. Bernard also used the opportunity to plead the cause of a new religious order, the Knights Templar. You've probably heard of the Knights Templar, probably from the the book or the movie of the Da Vinci Code. The Knights Templar were a crusading religious order dedicated to lives of poverty and physically defending the Holy Land and pilgrims to the Holy Land. Now, if you remember, the result of the first crusade called by Blessed Urban II was the establishment of crusader kingdoms in the Holy Land carved out of the formerly Islamic territory. After the first crusade, their duty done, many of the soldiers... Uh, who had taken the Holy Land, decided to go back home to their family, to their homesteads. They weren't there to be there permanently. And this left a little vacuum, and it became difficult for pilgrims and for other groups to, to come visit the Holy Land. So a new group of religious knights was formed, and these knights were named the Templars because the Latin king of Jerusalem had established them on the Temple Mount. They took religious vows, and they also fought battles defending the holy sites. So basically think warrior monks, or probably more like monkish warriors. Bernard's uncle was a founding member, so Bernard backed the new order strongly. Their initial charter was approved at the Council of Troyes as well, and the Templars are going to continue playing a role in our story going forward. And, of course, so too will St. Bernard. His passion, his zeal, and sheer force of personality will dominate our narrative in the coming episodes. Now, our last little note from Honorius' papacy comes at the end of his life as things are starting to wind down. As it became clear that Honorius was getting ill in 1129, his chancellor, the Cardinal Amory de la Chard, who helped organize his election, sought to keep papal power within the Frangipani faction. Honorius himself, in his illness, moved to the Church of San Gregorio on the Chilean Hill, which was in Frangipani territory. He knew that the Pier Leone were looking greedily at the papacy as he was dying and would certainly make a push for their own candidate. So in early February, there was a rumor going around that the Pope had died, and a mob headed by the Pier Leone turned out in the streets of Rome and tried to rush the monastery where the Pope was still living. So Cardinal Omri decided something had to be done. He decided to appoint eight cardinals to be the electors to elect the next Pope, mainly the cardinal bishops and most from the Frangipani faction, while the majority of the cardinals, happened to be from the Pier Leone faction, would uh, be kind of cast out. So these eight cardinals 
he locked in the monastery before Pope Honorius died so that they couldn't be attacked and would be ready to go at the event of the Pope's death. But we'll have to wait to find out what would happen next because Cardinal Amory declared that nothing could happen until after the Pope's burial. Pope Honorius died on February 13, 1130 and was buried in the Lateran Basilica. His successor will be Pope Innocent II, but as you can probably guess from what I just said, that election did not go well at all. But we will have to wait for that for next week. Thanks for listening to Albemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless you.